Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This segment originally aired in May 2018. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We're in our culinary studios at the Big G Gateway Community College in New Haven, five kitchens. On the show, we're going to talk about a book that has just come out so utterly fascinating because it involves a substance that we all know. You can use it in cooking, in cleaning after cooking. In so many ways, it'll blow your mind. It is the most inexpensive product, and the whole book is devoted to it. I can't wait to tell you about that. Alex Provence, who is both now our Southwestern correspondent and spends half his time here, is in the studio this time, and he has brought a wine. This is a box wine, and it is from France, the Rhone region, and it is gangbusters. Four bottles in a single box, and you cannot believe the price and how delicious it is. So... Robin Doyen Aiken is here, our senior producer. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hey, here we go. Alex is a wine broker and has brought us something. <laughs> I'm, I'm, ho- Alex, it's so great to uh. see you face to face. Okay, so I'm holding something that is a box. It's, it looks like a small cardboard box. Smaller than a bread box. <laughs> Smaller than a bread box. And it is... A wine that you have brought to us in the past that I have raved about, it is a rosé from the Côte de Rhone, mm-hmm. and this is the 2017. This has become a box wine. Can you explain this to us sure. before we taste this? So everyone thinks of box wines as being industrial and inexpensive, cheap wines that you wouldn't want to drink. But in Europe, it's part of alternative packaging where it's better for the environment. You're not shipping glass. It's completely recyclable. More affordable for more, the vineyard. Much cheaper to, to actually fill it than it is bottles. But how does it benefit the consumer? Well, that little besides, box you're holding cheaper. is okay. four bottles of wine. It, it seems impossible. I think, it does. Is, are they cheating? I mean, <laughs> how can four bottles? Right, Breaking the laws of how physics. How do four bottles fit in this little <laughs> tiny box Where they're squeezed that I can in, hold you know? with just a few fingers? It's unbelievable. Yeah. But true enough, if you look at all the packaging, four bottles are in here. This is Domaine Le Clos de Lumière. So we've had this on the show before. It is a pale and gorgeous rosé, dry, that just seems to go with everything. You keep this in the refrigerator. It's got one of these little spouts spouts <laughs> that you just pop out of the box. Uh-huh. And we just <laughs> did this, and it was it's the most fun. So yeah. let me just pour a little of this into my... Alex, can you come around and hold me? Okay, you do that. You press the little okay. plastic. <laughs> okay, go Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's good. Wow. Yeah, there it is. 
<laughs> all right, we all have it. So just as a reminder, Domaine Le Clos de Lumière from the Côte d'Aron region. Where's the Côte d'Aron? So in the south of France, near the city of Avignon. So it's on the edge of Provence. Exactly. The very far south part of the Rhone mm. River, and then it's technically from a little town called Fournaise. So the name Domaine Le Clos de Lumière means... Clos is like a little clos of, of light, like a um, medieval abbey, and Lumière is, is brightness or light or something. I am knocked out by this The quality thing. Is, is... The quality yeah. is unreal. So here's my big question for you. First of all, what does this sell for a box? So there are four bottles in there. So you buy it by the box, and a box will be about $34, $35 for the consumer. And then... So it, let's say 35 Sure. And there are four bottles in there. So eight fifty a bottle. And the idea, so, you know, Matt and I were laughing. If you're a daily drinker who likes to have wholesome, well-made wine, like you come home from work, you want to open up a bottle, there's not a cheaper way of buying authentic French wine than this format. I mean, you'll never buy a bottle for eight fifty. This tiny cardboard box fits in your refrigerator shelf so sure. easily because it's so small. And you just it's take airtight. the little spout. It's airtight. And this is the thing. Yeah. How long can that sit on Forever. the shelf? Forever. So it'll last weeks and weeks and weeks, months, actually. Without going back. Because it's the air that makes wine spoil. It turns it into vinegar. And no air can get in. It, inside this cardboard, and it has as little ink as possible, so it's all recyclable. It's just raw cardboard. Inside is a little bladder, and that's airtight. So as you pour, and you'll get every last drop out, air doesn't come in. So it... Essentially, it's mm. it's its own little wine tank. So Alex knows that when this, he brought this in in bottles into the studio in the past. You can search it on our website, foodschmooze.org. And when he brought this in, I was knocked out by the quality of this. My first question for him when I saw that they're doing this was, have they changed anything in the production or in the quality of this wholesome wine to accommodate this sort of, you know, has it become industrial in any way? And I know you'll be honest with me. Yeah, so the Daniel family has still three generations. The cost of producing wine, you know, have the cost of making the wine, but you also have bottling costs and all of that adds up. So the cork has a cost. An expensive cork can almost be a mm-hmm. dollar. The bottle has an expensive cost, the shipping cost. So the weight you, of the, the, the mm-hmm. weight. I mean, so you're paying, you know, environmentally to, when you think of an empty case of wine with just the bottles alone, it's a tremendous amount of weight, and you're paying for that, and that's sort of the environmental cost. So that's how they make up for the price differential. It's just they're putting four bottles of wine without spending four corks and the money on four bottles. A way of looking at it is, you know, like the little bottles of wine that you get on airplanes? Mm -hmm. Those can be almost as expensive as a full bottle of wine because the effort to fill it and to produce it is almost the same. So it's a tremendous amount of money spent on that. So the hard part is getting over as a consumer. People look at this and they think, oh, this should be an inexpensive, you know, bad wine. It's like a screw cap. You kind of have to get over it. And you say the quality of wine is still in a state-produced high-end quality wine. So this is something I want to talk with senior producer Robin Doyen Aiken about because we were just at a restaurant trying this wine and they were so gracious to let us do this because we wanted to try the food at Olives and Oil in New Haven, right downtown, and it is a 
fabulous restaurant. So good. Really. And so we were having, uh, we brought this in, they brought us glasses to the table. And Robin, you said, well, of course, when Alex first said he was bringing a box of wine, it made me giggle a little bit. (laughs) But um, it's still incredibly delicious. Um, We had it with a bunch of different things. We had it with sardines. We had it with scallops. Yes. um, Alex had it with some pasta. Scallops and preserved Meatballs. Mm -hmm. Meatballs. it, It just goes with so many things. This is your weeknight wine, or your... Robin, you said you'd bring this to a party yes. in a minute. Yes, Alex was talking about how the packaging actually keeps this wine fresh for months, but I was thinking, who wouldn't show up to a party with this box of wine? I know. Four you bottles. Just, you just put it on the edge of a table. Like, yeah. A pool party, or boaters who can't bring glass on a boat, or... Uh, campgrounds where they don't want glass for safety reasons. I mean, there's so or many... Or my house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? The other I... thing, it's easy to carry. It doesn't look like four bottles of wine. I mean, it you can tuck impossible. it underneath your arm. <laughs> it's like a little magic show. <laughs> it's very really... deceptive. <laughs> <laughs> it's really terrific. I'm so excited about the potential with this because of the quality of this wine. It tastes exactly as we tasted it in the bottle. I just wanted to get your assurance, Alex, your personal I promise you, absolutely promise you that this is the exact same wine as in the glass bottle. And you can, you know, you can go into a retail store and you can pay 14 or 15 for, for the glass bottle, or you could spend 34, 35 and spend the equivalent of, of 850. And you can do it side by side mm-hmm. and they're exactly the same wine. I love a good deal. I do too. And if you go online, we've got a picture of the box. We've got a kind of a hilarious picture of us <laughs> pouring this into a glass from a you know significant height um, <laughs> at, at the restaurant. And um, that's at foodschmooze.org. Now, um, you'll see there what we say. Not every wine store is probably onto this yet. And so call ahead and read them the label, and then they'll be sure to bring it in. And we list the distributor right there at foodschmooze.org. Let's jump over to the restaurant experience, olives and oil. And we had a cocktail at this restaurant, and you'll see that picture too. You'll see all of our food. And it was so, it's called Notorious P.I.G. And Mm -hmm. it is a play, there's a little pig, there's a play in this cocktail. Just a little um, pick. Notorious B.I.G., Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No, Notorious R.B.G., Ruth Bader Ginsburg, (laughs) um, a woman we love on the Supreme Court. So they have made the most, was this the most delicious cocktail? It's instant summer. The yeah. strawberries, the Prosecco yes. in it. It is Beautiful so pink house-made, oh. strawberry-infused mm-hmm. vodka, and oh, as the base, and then many other things, a little Aperol. Aperol, right? Oh, fabulous. And the pig, did, did you guys squeeze it? It yeah, had a little... Yeah. <laughs> It's really an actual little plastic pig that comes on the edge of the glass. You'll see. You'll see at foodschmooze.org. But we had uh, polpo, which was the grilled octopus. We had, you had a... um, Bolognese that was to die for. Really? Meatball. Oh, so good. I didn't taste that. Okay. And the pasta was homemade. So it's like delicious. Yeah, they make it every morning. And it was al dente. So it was not mushy. It really had like a nice texture to it. And the sauce was... Loves my scallops, but delicious. you know what was the winner at the table? I would never have guessed the grilled sardines. Yeah, yeah, it was if my you, first time. If you and would you think, Robin? I 
I'm now mad at myself for not having eaten sardines my whole life because it was so rich. Those were particularly good. They, yeah. You know, some some places just do a great job with them, and olives and oil does that. Because I think we grew up, like, with cartoons where the cat has the sardines out of the garbage can <laughs> yeah. and all that's left are the bones or something. <laughs> so it has this, like, <laughs> funny connotation. Or you say, don't we use those for bait? You know what yeah. I mean? It's just like, they're, they're so good. Doesn't it taste like just the best fish? I mean, the, if you can get over the name, the connotation behind it, sardines yeah. are just so briny and well, You know how we grew up with them delicious. in a can, and I do eat yeah. them that way? When you have them on the grill, like this yeah. hole on the grill, they Some smart, lemon they're phenomenal. And salt. Yeah. Really I phenomenal. had no idea what I was missing all this time. Oh. Th- that on a sandwich, just a baguette, you know, a piece of bread Can and I sardines. The John yeah, Brennan's, the, the owner's mm. mother, is Sicilian with the desserts. And she did the des- she does the desserts for the yeah. restaurant. I have had enough panna cotta to last me yeah. a lifetime going to Italy so often. This was a lavender panna cotta with berries strewn around it and a, a, a dollop of whipped and yes, yeah. beautiful flowers on top. It was dazzling. It was. She is something. It was like creamy without being like gelatinous, right? It like it mm-hmm. had just rich flavor, and it wasn't you know that sometimes. I don't even like lavender. I mean, I, know, I, was just I don't like order crazy. a lavender dessert either, or a it, lavender drink it was because phenomenal. It's, it's so it can be overpowering sometimes. <laughs> yeah. well, it but... keeps the bugs away. That's why the French <laughs> yeah. grow it to keep the scorpions away. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, just fabulous. And Alex, thank mm. you for bringing this one. Of course. To find out more about this, and it is, what did we say, 30 34 $35. $35 for four bottles in one small, I mean small, cardboard box. You think it, it's not possible. Yeah, With a people little... really need to look at the picture on our site because if you are thinking about boxed wines from like the 90s, that is not this. Yeah, some, some oh, serious no. wine drinkers are going to have to learn how to walk over to the box section of stores because they may have never gone there before. And there are <laughs> yeah. a lot. There are many, many. I check on them yeah. because I want us it's, to do what Europe is doing and get boost growing. up the quality, right? Yeah. And, and get away from the industrial production uh, in these box wines, which really is not wholesome and not necessarily so great for the body. This is a real wine. And, you know, I was thinking some people that aren't big drinkers, maybe who just want a glass every once in a while, this is also a fun format for them because they can have a glass maybe once or twice a week. It'll last them for a long, long time, so you won't be throwing away wine. So we're in the restaurant. We called ahead and said, would you allow us to do this? And they said, of course. So we're walking with our cardboard box of wine, and we're pouring it and taking pictures and having a grand old time. Then it's time to leave, so to come over to do this show. We pick up the box, and Alex says, feel this. There's still three bottles in here. (laughs) I just thought that's not possible, and it's true. It goes, it goes, it goes. It's just just an empty. It's like a religious miracle, this thing. (laughs) There's a hose attached to the wall or something. <laughs> Aside from all of those other benefits, it's just delicious wine. It's I delicious it. wine. Yeah. All right, here's what we're going to do coming up in our next segment. We are going to talk about a book that is one of the most fascinating food books I have ever read, and it's about one single product, whether you use it in cooking or in cleaning 
cleaning pots or stain removal. It is it's just a thing in nature that, well, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's the Baking Soda Companion is the name of the book. I, I was floored by all the things that baking soda does. Who and knew? It's, who <laughs> in the world knew that this happened? Makes things smell good. I guess our ancestors They're knew. less bad. But, <laughs> all right. Uh, it's been around since, what, uh, Egyptian times, I think, baking wow. soda. Okay. So we're going to get to that uh, coming up in our next segment. More mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.com. ORG and we'll be right back. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This segment originally aired in May 2018. <laughs> Cornbread had a fight. Beans, Beans knocked cornbread out of sight. Beans. Cornbread said, Now that's all right. Beans. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. Beans. I'll be ready. I'll be ready tomorrow night. I'll be ready. I'll be ready tomorrow night. I'll be ready. I'll be ready tomorrow night. That's what Beans said to Cornbread. I'll be ready I'm Faith Middleton. Sign up for our free podcast. It just comes to you on whatever device you'd like. So that is at Food Schmooze, S-C-H like school, M-O-O like the cow, Z-E, foodschmooze.org. Okay. My treasured food buddies are here, and we are about to talk about, honestly, this is one of the most interesting books that I have read in a long time. It's about one inexpensive product and how many ways that you can use it while you're cooking, cleaning, uh, removing wine stains, pot stains, oh, and about a thousand other things. The book is called The Baking Soda Companion. And when I was done reading, I thought, what? This can't be true. (laughs) So we want you to put this to the test. We're asking you now on Facebook. How are you using baking soda in either cooking or cleaning? And share that with us on Facebook. The site is Faith Middleton Fuchmos. And if you don't know anything about this, wait until you hear this conversation. The book, The Baking Soda Companion, and the author is, these are natural recipes and remedies for health, beauty, and home. The author is Susie Scher. Uh, welcome to the Fuchmos Party. Thanks for having me. Susie, what is baking soda? Sodium bicarbonate is a mineral. The short answer is that it's a ground-up rock, but it's really, it's a mineral. It's a salt, actually, is what it is. And in fact, if you were to taste baking soda, it would taste salty to you. So it's a very uncomplicated product. There's nothing in it except for this mineral, Mm -hmm. this So let me ask you, is there anything they do in the production of this? Uh, Plain salt can be produced in a way that is not so great for the body, not so body-friendly. Is there anything they do in the production of this that we should be careful of? Is there one kind of baking soda that's better than another? How does that work? No. Baking soda is 
pure and it's natural and there's actually nothing scary about it at all. It's about as safe a product as you can get your hands on. You know, as we all know, we've all grown up using it in our refrigerators. You open the box and you think it eliminates odors. Does it? It does. It okay. really and truly does. But you don't want to use that box to, <laughs> as you, to, to, do, to you know. Please in, don't use that box to cook with. All don't right. use this box. Here's the thing. Uh oh, everyone here, does, you here, know. <laughs> hey, <laughs> not me, I know. Not me. <laughs> okay, so here is you've got food recipes in here, you've got all these home remedies with this stuff, and I cannot wait to get out of this. Thank you for letting us put some of the recipes in. Number one, this recipe the fluffiest scrambled eggs ever using baking soda. How does that work? Baking soda is the pH scale is a little bit alkaline and eggs are just a little bit acidic. So if you think back to science class when you would combine baking soda with vinegar. The volcano. Exactly, the volcano. So what happens when you add just a little bit of baking soda to eggs it has that a tiny bit of that chemical reaction, so you're getting bubbles, you're getting air in the eggs, and that adds lift and lightness in sort of a surprising but amazing way. And there is no evidence or research that you know of that says that putting even a little baking soda into the human body, into the stomach, the gastro tract, does anything to, I don't know what, kill off the microbiome, <laughs> you know, be unfriendly to the community there? Or is there any problem health-wise? Not that I know of. For one thing, with any product, you want to use common sense. So you're not going to be eating cups and cups of baking soda. That would be really tough on the system. Okay. But a little bit is harmless and may even be helpful. Okay. So thank you for that recipe at foodschmooze.org. Then, of course, Robin and I went to another recipe that we thought was just so fantastic, and that is how to use just a touch of baking soda, thanks to you, to create dreamy, crispy, roasted potatoes. Oh. Isn't uh, that a cool one? Yeah. So you say Yukon Gold Potatoes. This is at the site, foodschmooze.org. little salt, just a touch of baking soda. You tell us the amounts, a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, a little teaspoon of pepper, toss it all together. And what happens? There are a couple of things that happen. For one, the baking soda breaks down the pectin in the potatoes. And also, because it's a salt, it draws the starch to the surface. So what is happening is you're getting creamy, fluffy potato on the inside and really crisp on the outside. Mm. Um, and that's because of what's happening chemically with the starch. Let me jump in and ask this uh, health question, because sure. a lot of people, thanks to their doctors, have gone on the DASH diet, which is a low-salt diet to help with a variety of issues regarding the heart and blood pressure. Because this is, quote-unquote, a salt, uh, if you are on a DASH diet, do you have to be careful? I don't actually know the answer to that question. Okay. I thank you for saying that, so honestly. Okay, so <laughs> I, I we say ask your doctor. Exactly, consult with your doctor. So here's the third recipe. This is amazing to me, and I really want to understand this. You give us a recipe, and we put it on the site, homemade ramen noodle. This is a hack. You can take regular noodles, add baking soda, 
and turn them into ramen noodles. And if you are a ramen noodle freak, you will go, oh my God, how do I do that? So tell me how this one works. So for one thing, when you think about the way that ramen noodles taste, as opposed to regular spaghetti, there's definitely a flavor component that baking soda adds, this sort of alkaline, a little bit intangible flavor. So that's one thing that's happening. The other thing is that something chemically goes on with the baking soda that changes the texture of the pasta. So instead of being soft and tender to the bite, becomes more elastic and sort of springy, and that's one of the signature aspects of ramen noodles traditionally. So so you can actually take regular spaghetti and a little bit of baking soda, we give you the recipe, and some water and Mm -hmm. turn it into the same, this is why it's a hack, to turn it into the same texture and profile of ramen noodles. Yep. So very cool. Close imposter, I would say. So here's a recipe you have for a tummy tamer. It can happen that people go out and party too much or something goes on, who knows, and you have an acidic stomach. And some people will run to get various over-the-counter stuff. you saying that we can use baking soda and water to create a tummy tamer. Absolutely. If you were to look on the back packaging of a lot of over-the-counter antacids, you would find that the active ingredient in many of them is, in fact, baking soda. In the same way that it would balance sweetness and acid in a, in a dish that you're cooking, because it's alkaline, balances the acid in your stomach. Yeah, this I know that you have to follow the instructions perfectly because you want to use a very small amount of sodium bicarbonate because otherwise it'll produce copious amounts of gas in your intestines, which can actually be bad. So Yeah, it's, then you're uh, just trading one problem for another. Yeah, so, <laughs> and, and so read the back of the box very carefully when you yeah, use it. Yeah, exactly. Follow the recipe and don't think more is better. No. You know, no. this is what we all do. <laughs> yeah, this be is like not Willy, like chocolate. <laughs> like Willy Wonka, you'll be floating up to the ceiling fan yeah. or something. <laughs> Okay. And no one wants that. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I have, uh, in my lifetime, I don't know about you folks, gone and bought fruit and vegetable wash. So here I find out that you can make your own fruit and vegetable wash using a little white vinegar, your baking soda, a little grapefruit seed extract, which is at most health food stores. So why does it remove bad stuff from fruits and vegetables? Well, because it breaks down some of the waxes on the outside Mm -hmm. of produce. A lot of produce is waxed, and that's not something that you really want to ingest. And the other reason is that it's just a little bit more abrasive, right? So it can get, it can peel away some of the, the dirt that's a little bit harder to get at when you are just running uh, fruits and vegetables underwater. Um, but the other thing that is great about baking soda is that it actually can be antibacterial. Mm. So some mm. of the icky germs that are on the outside of fruits and vegetables from other people handling it in the market, from Rolling around harvesting the floor. it, mm. um, you know, we all try to 
wash our hands and be clean, but you yeah. can't count on it. <laughs> yeah, so so we would say um, with something like this, because we've had all these E. coli scares and all that, um, I, I wouldn't assume that anything we talk about on the show is going to automatically eliminate uh, e. coli, or it would be irresponsible for us to suggest such a thing when we really don't know. But I hear you about this, Susie, that it can be very helpful in many ways. Now, having said that, let me just add in that in modern food production now in the in the corporate world, the nasty juju, uh, the poisons are um, in. Uh, it sort of bred into the development of the fruit or the vegetable. Mm. And so you can't just take the skin off and think, now I'm safe. I thought so, and then scientists called me and said, we're it's so inside s- the fruit? It's inside, during the ejected during the development of the fruit. So it's on the inside as well as the outside. So all the more reason, if you can possibly afford it, to try to afford organic if you possibly can. It, sometimes I can't. They don't have it. Um, okay, so here was one I adored, Susie, which is how to make your own dishwashing powder. I buy dishwasher powder all the time, and it's not cheap. And, you know, I buy the one that I think is going to keep my glasses super clean. <laughs> um, and you have this recipe using baking soda. How, how does this go? I mentioned in the book that this was a uh, discovery that came about as a result of desperation. I had people coming over to my house, and I had run out of dishwasher detergent, and I had a sink full of dirty dishes. <laughs> and so I did a little research and found that a little drop of liquid dish soap and baking soda works incredibly well. It's an especially great dishwashing solution. If you have hard water, you'll find amazingly that you end up with a lot fewer spots on your glasses. Um, Hmm. The cool thing about baking soda is that because it's a salt, it's made up of a ton of tiny little crystals that are actually water soluble. So I always joke that it's like Mary Poppins. It's firm, but effective. Uh, So when you wet baking soda, the edges of the crystals begin to soften just a little bit. So it's a good scrub, but it won't scratch the surface of whatever you're cleaning. It's what makes it such a great cleaning product. So so here's my Lucy Ricardo moment. And this was really was an episode of the show, except it happened to me. I got it in my head one night that I could just, why was I buying this product, I could just put dishwashing detergent into oh, my dishwasher. <laughs> and so you're, you're going to see this recipe and you're going to be tempted to add more than what it says, which is just two drops of dish soap. Don't do what I did. Don't be enthusiastic. The bubbles and suds coming out from every you corner. You cannot believe it was pouring out of the locked door all over the kitchen floor. It was like pouring out like it was unbelievable. So I certainly, you just do that once. <laughs> um, so um, pay attention to that recipe. Uh, we've got only a minute to go, Susie. So let me quickly say there is a recipe in your book, The Baking Soda Companion, for how to make your own silver polish, how to clean enameled cast iron cookware. I have a Good lot one. of that. Yeah. 
um, how to get red wine stains Ooh. out. We're trying to make this very food schmooze centric. There's something in here about a shower curtain cleaner or something. Um, how to clean the grill with baking soda oh, and water. Uh, it's a good abrasive, which makes sense. And how to get rid of a lot of the odor in your compost bin. Uh, that can be really odorous. And how to use baking soda to sweeten your tomato plant. This is an old thing that people have done for a long, long time. The baking soda, by the way, goes back to, what is it, the Egyptians? Yeah, absolutely. Does anyone still brush your teeth with baking soda? Like my mom used to do well, that. The, somebody good or not. made a commercial brand yeah. of toothpaste. It's just fascinating my teeth are still here. to read this. <laughs> it's a fascinating book, Susie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you. The Baking Soda Companion, Natural Recipes and Remedies for Health, Beauty, and Home. There's a lot of beauty stuff in here that was really interesting to me. Okay, it's at our food site, foodschmooze.org. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers. You can get our podcast, as you know, at foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This segment originally aired in March 2016. This is the Food Schmooze Party, offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, of course, the Hamptons. The senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken, and to hear the show, we love her. To hear the show on WNPR, it airs Thursdays at 3. Podcasts and our curated recommendations, as you probably know, are always online at foodschmooze.org. You spell schmooze like school, S-C-H, foodschmooze.org. Of course, we want you to talk with us on Facebook. When it comes to food and culture, everybody's Irish on St. Patrick's Day, Puerto Rican when the homemade coquito drink comes out in January, and everybody's Jewish on Passover or Rosh Hashanah. I start craving fork tender brisket, potato pancakes, uh, the carrot simis, and sometimes on the show, we like to do a mashup of holidays. For Easter, instead of ham, we'll try Puerto Rican pork shoulder marinated in garlic, fresh citrus, and wine. Well, we're about to celebrate Passover, so we have what will no doubt be mouth-watering conversation with the author of Modern Jewish Cooking, the classics or new wave Jewish cooking. Around here, we love tradition and we love what's new. We have the author of the book, Leah Koenig, who's here, and you probably have seen her name in so many of your most loved publications. She's an authority on Jewish cooking. Welcome to the Food Schmooze Party, Leah. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here especially. So we wanted to start with something that is so popular with so many people, Jewish, not Jewish, blintzes. 
I love this take of yours doing orange scented cheese blintzes. You make a batter for the blintzes of either milk or almond milk, eggs, sugar, all-purpose flour, vanilla extract, and salt, and then that filling of ricotta. You can use low-fat or full-fat confectioner's sugar, orange zest, a little bit of butter for frying. That's the part we love. (laughs) Maybe some fresh berries on top, some sour cream. Tell us about this recipe. Blintzes are one of my absolute favorite Eastern European-inspired Jewish dishes. You know, just for folks who aren't familiar, I basically think of them as a crepe that's filled with either, you can go savory with mashed potato, or you can kind of go sweet with fruit. And one of the more common ones is uh, cheese-filled blintzes. So mm-hmm. you're not thinking like fontina or cheddar, you're thinking more like a cottage cheese or a farmer's cheese filling traditionally. Now, um, why is that? Do you want the flavor to be neutral or that's what was around? Probably back in Eastern Europe, they used a lot of farmer's cheese, and that's mm-hmm. what was available. It also has, like you said, a really mild flavor that pairs really well when they're pan-fried and pairs also really well with fruit, mm-hmm. like a fruit topping. So, you know, mm-hmm. what I tried to do is take the traditional dish and update it for today's taste by adding some orange zest and some flavors that kind of brighten it and make it a little bit more contemporary. Yeah, um, I love the orange zest touch in this. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thanks. Yeah. And what we have here, I love this recipe in particular because, first, I love blintzes. Mm -hmm. And with a little bit of a slight crisp on the outside and then that yummy texture, that velvety inside. But we can see from other cultures that all of them blend together. So... We have, in France, we have the orange peel hanging above the stove Mm. to put orange zest in so many stews. We Mm. have the Italian influence. You think about the communities in Italy that were Jewish-Italian. There is so much intermixing of cultures here. And then a lot of Jews moved to the Lower East Side, right, Leah? And then it was, it became a cheese that was available. If you couldn't get farmer's cheese from the Italian neighborhood, you got cottage cheese. True, yeah. One of the things I love about Jewish cuisine in general is that it's actually a very global cuisine. A lot of people think of it as being specifically Eastern European food, which is true to an extent because a lot of Jews, especially Jews who moved to America, are, have that background. But, you know, there's Jews all over the world, everywhere from China to Mexico to uh, South Africa, and you know, they all have food traditions that go back in many cases, thousands of years. So, you know, when you're talking about Jewish cuisine, it's really fun to kind of explore the global aspects of it. There are things in these cultures, no matter what the culture is, that are really kind of shocking to the palate for other people outside the culture. I'm thinking about Marmite in England, (laughs) you know, in Britain, where you just go, wow, what is that? And you have to get used to it. But if you grew up with it, there are other things that have stuck around so long because they're just good. And I think blintzes are one of those things, right, Leah? I think so, too. I do want to say these particular blintzes are not uh, Passover coming up, and they're not a Passover-friendly recipe, but they are following holiday after Passover. It's called Shavuot, and it's mm-hmm. a very dairy-focused holiday. So it's actually a very good a recipe for um, a springtime holiday that's coming up. Good thought. Okay, let's go into something that is very well known as Passover arrives, and that is the matzo ball. 
<laughs> and there is so much, just like the meatball, there are family recipes, there are people who add this and that, one to make it lighter, another one who's doing a gourmet treatment, another one <laughs> who's who does it because this is the way my family did it. And you have a parsley matzo ball recipe. Yeah, you know, matzo balls are just one of those quintessential dishes um, or parts of a dish that you, you eat them, obviously, in, in chicken soup that people get really particular about. You know, you want it to taste just like your grandmother made it or your mother or father made it. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to kind of stray too far from the original classic, A, because it's delicious as it is, and B, because people really want the tradition. So what I try to do with my matzo balls is to just tweak them just a tiny bit to add a little bit of freshness. The one recipe that you mentioned, it's a basic matzo ball that just gets amped up and brightened up with a shock of green parsley, which really isn't so crazy to do, Mm -hmm. um, because parsley is usually part of the soup. But I have another recipe in there for a a jalapeno and shallot matzo ball. That one's a little bit bit wilder. Um, I love it. Takes the traditional matzo ball and just infuses it with a little bit of spice and a little bit of that caramelized shallot flavor. So it sounds crazy, but it actually tastes well within the, the realm of tradition, but with just a little bit of a twist. Oh, so. we mm. love it. I was going to bring that up. There, These are on facing pages in the book, which is called Modern Jewish Cooking. The author is with us, Leah Koenig. When you say modern Jewish cooking, when you say I'm updating or putting a spin, you know, what's your philosophy about how to do that? Right. It's a good question, and I think it's a question that every generation of Jewish cooks kind of have to answer for themselves, because, you know, the how we eat is sort of always evolving. But for me, what it means is really having an eye to seasonal flavors and, you know, local and, and seasonal ingredients. And then also, as you were talking about earlier on the show, blending cultures within a cuisine. Jewish tradition has so many cultures contributing to the larger canon of the cuisine, but also just reaching outside of the Jewish world and saying, what's around us? You know, what's inspiring and how can we play in a fun way with flavor? That to me is what modern means. It's new and interesting flavors and a sense of seasonality. Well, we have here a Moroccan chicken with preserved lemons. Mm. And everyone here in this room, we are nuts about preserved lemons. And so this would be a dish for Moroccan Jews on Shabbos, right? And Yom Kippur? Yeah, um, it would be definitely a dish that you would see on the Sabbath table. Preserved lemons are a hugely popular ingredient throughout North Africa and, and the Middle East. They found their way into um, Israeli cooking via those channels. And chicken is kind of the quintessential Shabbat dish. In Eastern European cuisine, you'd have a basic roast chicken. And this, for me, was a way of looking to the Moroccan and Moroccan Jewish tradition and saying, you know, how can we find new ways to do things that make them a little more interesting than what we've had growing up? And I'm talking about we, with my own background, being Eastern European. And we're fully aware on the show, because we love both, no matter what the holiday, what the culture, we love tradition and we love what's new Mm -hmm. and how things change. And so we respect you if you say, I want to make it the way my family made it, that's important too for memory, for whatever. And then we love people who are doing what Leah's doing, saying, how can I update this a little bit, put a twist in this that makes it a little more interesting? Mm -hmm. In the end, as long as it's good, as long as it's about memory. I will say, Leah, that when I went to France leading a food trip, one of my guides said to me, I think you should say to the chefs, we want you to cook what your mother made. Mm. 
Mm. And we did that. And he said, you will experience France in a way that nobody does anymore. So there's a great debate about things changing in all these cultures. No doubt some of the people doing the innovative things like Ferran Adria in Spain, it's like fabulous and exciting and interesting. And then we have the traditionalists. So I love this interplay, the borrowing. Food's always changing, right, Leah? I think that's the exact right point is that tradition is is wonderful and we can't forget it because it's the foundation of everything. But we'd be wrong to say that food is not ever evolving. Even even what our mothers cooked, our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers cooked, they were influenced by the world around them. Mm. Um, So to the extent that our world changes and we change, I think food is an honest reflection of who we are in a given time. I think tweaking and changing sounds maybe like an interesting thing to do, but it's actually just a very natural thing to do. Um, so as long as you kind of have your your heart in the right place of, of wanting to mm. honor the past and honor the traditional, I think you have a very solid foundation to play. Yeah. I like um, the idea of the latkes. Some people have applesauce with it, depending on where they're from, and some people have sour cream with it, right? And that just mm-hmm. shows you one dish in the Jewish culture that from two different areas is done two different ways. And then I go into a restaurant in New York, Latanzi, which specializes in Roman Jewish cooking. I learn mm. all about from that restaurant the intersection of Jewish and Italian cuisine, and wow. it's a whole other ball game, yeah. and it's fabulous. So it, I, it is. Is there Abu Danza? <laughs> In a way, there certainly is. Okay, so I think Italians and Jews certainly always afraid, and Scots, I'm Scotch, is always afraid that there is not enough on the table, you know? So um, so you have a lasagna. You know, you'll find that a lot of the recipes in this book, Modern Jewish Cooking, are gluten-free. Spinach matzo lasagna. Um, not yes. this one, not, but, but go ahead. Yeah, spinach matzo lasagna is definitely not gluten-free unless you use a gluten-free matzo, but it is a twist on lasagna, which, you know, obviously everybody loves hot, cheesy casserole with noodles. How can you go wrong? But when you're talking about Passover, there's so many things you can't eat and so many things that you're sort of missing mm-hmm. and craving that people have found ways to kind of make things that are reminiscent of some of those foods. So in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, masa lasagna has come up as a very popular either weeknight dish or um, holiday post-saver lunch dish yeah. where you replace the noodles with softened matzo. And I have to tell you, I make this year-round because you actually can't tell. Like, you can tell that it's not noodle, but it is delicious. Mm. Um, so and it's a little that's bit an lighter awesome idea. Isn't it a cool idea? So you just take so, the matzah and put it on as the layer. Yeah. So, yeah. so let me ask, essentially these are the same things. We're talking about flour and water, sometimes egg. Why is matzah different in terms of its deliciousness from regular noodles? You know, it's got a, a little bit of a lighter quality than the noodles. You know how when you eat lasagna and it's delicious, but you end up feeling like a little bit like you have a brick in your stomach? Mm-hmm. So this just lightens it up just enough so the cheese and the vegetables, the spinach and the sauce kind of shine through without the, you know, it's still obviously a carbohydrate base, but it's not quite such a heavy one. I just find that extra lightness to be a really nice, nice touch. We have this recipe on our website for the spinach matzo lasagna. I'm someone who thinks a lot about the texture in my mouth, so I like that crispy thing going on somehow. Would it be okay if in the end I crumbled up a little matzo on the top so I had a little bit of crispy, crunchy stuff going on? 
that I would use that because the reason the matzo works so well in lasagna is because it soaks up the flavor. And if you had mm. just plain matzo on top, I think it wouldn't have the right flavor. But what I would do is, you know how you can um, cook Parmesan on a baking sheet till mm. it gets kind of crunchy? Mm. I might make a few Parmesan crunchy crumbles and crumble that. Oh, now too. you're talking. That's much better than my idea. Well, wait, what about cooking the matzo in chicken fat and then sprinkling it on top? Oh, that's good. Now you're talking. Now you're talking our language. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, you couldn't do that if you were serving a kosher meal because there's cheese in the, in the lasagna. Right, right, that's right. You can't mix cheese and uh, meat. But if that's not a concern, then, then have at it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, oh so- you, could also, you could also fry up some shallots or fry up something kind Ooh, of like that onions Ooh, and yeah. those on top. <gasps> Love that now, idea. Now you've got my juices flowing. Now I want <laughs> <laughs> to go to, We need to all go to the kitchen immediately. Um, let's go to the dessert category because here is something that is, in fact, gluten-free, and that would be the chocolate almond meringues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never made meringue because I'm not a baker. I'm always afraid of baking. I'm going to ruin things. So really it's egg whites and cream of tartar confectioner's sugar and regular sugar, bittersweet baking chocolate, and roasted unsalted almonds that you chop up fine. So how hard is it to make the meringue? You know, my mom made meringues every single Passover. So, you know, I grew up watching her make them, but never actually trying it. And when I first tried it five or six years ago, I was a little nervous to make them, partly because she had made them so deliciously and how can you live up to that? But I was surprised at how not difficult it was. The real trick to meringues is you want to beat the egg whites. You want everything to be really cold and you want to beat it until it has the the right peaks to it so that it'll hold its shape when you bake it. Mm. Um, But from there, you just, you pipe it on the baking sheet and you bake it at a really low temperature, so it, it more instead of cooking, it more dries out. It almost dehydrates, and you're left with this sort of crackly outside and very melty, chewy inside. Um, I like that are, contrast. <laughs> yeah, meringues are really worth um, learning how to do. They're delicious. I know. I, I try to walk you through how to do it. In the well, book. When I go to a meal at Passover, I will offer to bring dessert, and so I'm out buying the meringues. So I have to mm-hmm. see if I'm brave enough to do this. Recipes and the cookbook online at foodschmooze.org. Leah Koenig, great guest. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, her book, Modern Jewish Cooking. Join the conversation with us. We're always up for a good time online. Foodschmooze.org. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Come to my